2: Hi, everyone. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. It's good to have you with us. We begin today on the steps of the Library of Congress, where 49-year-old Floyd Ray Roseberry of Grover, North Carolina, parked a black pickup truck for several hours on Thursday afternoon. During those hours, Mr. Roseberry posted several social media videos. And we've made an editorial decision here at The Takeaway not to play any portion of those recordings for you. Roseberry directly addressed President Biden, referring to him as Joe, while also indicating that the black pickup held explosive devices. Roseberry further indicated that he was part of a network of other individuals prepared to detonate explosive devices in other parts of the city. Just after 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Mr. Roseberry was taken into custody without incident. During the press conference immediately following their arrest. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger was asked whether he was aware of Mr. Roseberry's
1: motive. We do know that um, Mr. Uh, uh, Roseberry has had some losses of, of family. In his, uh, I believe his mother, uh, recently passed away, and uh, we spoke with uh, members of his family, and there were other issues that uh, he was dealing with. There'll be more on that uh, before uh, uh, at a later time.
2: Now, this response is noteworthy because it suggests an individual mental illness framework for understanding Mr. Roseberry's actions. Actions which caused the evacuation of multiple federal buildings and revived fears stemming from the January 6th riot at the Capitol. During the standoff, Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York tweeted, quote, My congressional team is safe and at home. These attacks are too familiar as we still heal from January 6th Hope all workers on the ground arrive home safely soon. While Mr. Roseberry may well be suffering from grief, loss, or even diagnosed mental illness, describing these conditions as a motive for violent posturing is troublesome. This framework inaccurately stigmatizes mental illness by implying a link to violence. This is a myth. Those suffering with mental illness are not more likely to be violent. In fact, those with mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of crimes than to be violent perpetrators. And this framework obscures the pressing social, political, and public safety question. Was this incident linked to the rising tide of domestic terrorism in the United States, and particularly to the increase in white supremacist violence documented by multiple organizations and the Department of Homeland Security? Here to discuss Thursday's events at the Library of Congress and the interpretive frame used for understanding those events are Nicholas Wu, Congressional Reporter for Politico. Welcome, Nicholas. Hi there. And Leisha Brooks, Chief of Staff for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Welcome back to the show, Leisha.
3: Thanks for having me, Melissa.
2: So, Nicholas, just get us up to date. What has happened since Mr. Roseberry was taken into custody on Thursday afternoon?
1: Well, since he was taken into custody, uh, the Capitol Police gave the all clear. And so far as we know right now, it, it seems that there were no other bombs around the city and there was no actual bomb in his car. So this this bomb threat that he had called in was just that, a threat, thankfully. Um, and and uh, Capitol staff are slowly returning to work in the buildings.
2: I was going to ask if, um, if, if that all clear meant that sort of um, on Friday morning that folks were able to have a a, a normal work day.
1: Uh, you know, as, as normal as things are uh, right now, uh, absolutely.
2: Now, uh, Nicholas, the chief uh, uh, f- for the Capitol Police during the press conference said that he had already spoken with the suspect's family. I was surprised to hear that, but maybe that's normal procedure. Do you have a sense of that?
1: I, I think it's pretty normal procedure for... The uh, you know During these kinds of negotiations for uh, the authorities to reach out to the families, I mean, you saw that news organizations reached out to the family of Roseberry as well. And, and so uh, I, I think the idea is just to get a better picture of what kind of person they're dealing with, how serious the threat could be, um, and where the person's really coming from as they try to negotiate and, and talk the uh, suspect down.
2: Okay, so that's helpful. Leisha, I want to come to you on this because, um, you know, I I am hearing there from Nicholas that this is part of sort of the process, you know, you're faced with this standoff, you got to try to get through it. Um, But I was surprised to hear the chief actually um, evoke this kind of individual's experiences of loss and grief as a potential motive for, for Thursday's events. Was that at all? What was kind of your reaction to that?
3: Thank you for the question. Uh, my reaction was similar to yours. in, in, in the setup in your introduction, um, it's interesting that repeatedly we see this happen repeatedly with with white male suspects in, in engaged in acts of, of domestic terrorism, um, offered a different frame for, for their for their actions. It's also interesting that the chief um, seemed seemed at a loss to identify the motive for um, his actions. When I think Mr. Roseberry clearly stated what his motives were. Um, he he repeatedly um, evoked um, um, images of the Confederacy, talking about the rising south, calling it a revolution um and, and his his directing his uh, words directly to President Joe Biden, I think was really, really clear. So in, in all that he said and all that he did over those hours, it's quite interesting to me that that the chief would would land where he did.
2: So, again, I I don't want to give the chief individually too hard a time for this. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that in these moments it's quite tense. But but I will say that like you, I was I was surprised at the idea that 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 there wouldn't be a mention of of politics, um, of race, of, you know, the sort of southern identity aspects, because it, it was Mr. Roseberry himself who said all of those things. We're not imputing that.
3: Southern Poverty Law Center. You know, for years we've we've watched people who have been radicalized into the anti-government movement take you know these violent actions, and and so we're not at all surprised that that you know Mr. Roseberry, like other you know anti-government extremists, have personal issues related to their health or finances. Uh, and and what what is interesting is is that these extremists often craft plots to to seek um, justice or revenge against the government. And the Southern Poverty Law Center's research shows that this typically occurs more frequently after a Democratic president is elected.
2: So, Nicholas, I'm wondering, you know, as a congressional reporter, as someone who is, you know, obviously sort of knows what's um, happening in the post-January 6th moment that Capitol Hill is living in, sort of um, initially, if if you were hearing from folks about either their sense of fear or, or, and as I will say this word, their sense of terror um, about what was unfolding?
1: Yeah, I I mean... Capitol Hill is very much on edge after what happened on January 6th. And you know after what happened in March too, when there was a car attack on the Capitol, um, but the, it's, it's always kind of a tricky situation because you, you know, the Capitol is a very high profile place. Um, you have these kind of suspicious incident reports, um, phoned in all the time and, and often it's, it's nothing very serious. Someone just left like a backpack unattended and the like, um, but, you know, every now and then it, it does escalate to something more serious. And, and that was the uh, the real fear that you saw among um, staffers yesterday. Like, was this going to be you know, just a, a suspicious vehicle that was you know, parked in the wrong spot? Or was this um, something much more serious? And and, you know, as we learned more uh, throughout Thursday morning, uh, we really started to uh, grasp how, how, how potentially um, se- severe of a uh, situation this was.
2: Okay, so building on this, Nicholas, Leisha, I want to come to you, but I want to play something for you. It's a little bit long, but but I think it might be informative here. Back on July 30th, I I had a wide-ranging conversation with former Capitol Police Chief Terry Gaynor, and and I asked him about the 2014 incident when Capitol Police shot and killed Miriam Carey, who was an African American woman whose infant child was strapped in a car seat in the car. And I just, I want to play what what Chief Gaynor said to me.
3: We did and do have Uh, different procedures when we believe a car is a improvised explosive device vehicle, the way to deliver that. So unlike police departments across the United States that have pretty much stopped saying you do not shoot at moving vehicles for any reason, even if the vehicle is coming at the officer, we don't shoot, but on the Capitol complex and other areas, if there's a thought that you are going to deliver a bomb, you are authorized to use force likely to cause death. Uh, I know some of the blowback on that. And frankly, I think there should have been much more transparency and people should see that now.
2: So Alicia, I wanna be really clear. I am. I applaud the Capitol Police for, for not um, making, escalating this and making it a, a violent circumstance. But I gotta say, between having just talked um, to former Chief Gaynor about the authorization to use that kind of force, hearing from Nicholas about how on edge um the the, the capital is right now, and then I just can never get Miriam Carey, a, a woman who was unarmed african American woman who just had a baby was shot dead and 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 this gentleman was rightly allowed to to sort of gather more information mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: no i i I too applaud uh- the, the actions of the Capitol Police, they were protecting public safety. And it could have been because Roseberry told them that if they were to shoot, into the vehicle that there would be another explosion. So mm-hmm. I, I want to, I want to give them that. But the point that you raise with respect to kind of how people are treated differently in their in, in in their engagements with law enforcement is is just is just a it's just a fact. Regardless of policies or procedures, we see this time and time again how individuals based on racial demographics for sure, are treated differently. And, and, and you had to know that, that Rosemary, I I just have to, I, I just have to mention this because as you, as you said, I mean, he's painted the way, the way we're painting him now, we're losing the fact that, that this person was radicalized. And, and we, we know that Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of, of American citizens have been radicalized over the last several years. Mr. Roseberry was belonged to face group, Facebook groups like White Lives Matter. He also um, uh, liked hate groups like Fair and Numbers USA, which are anti-immigrant. And these these um, the beliefs that they that they um, propagate. Were referenced in his own words, as you said. So we also have to. He had a YouTube account where he said, "You know, um, if, if Trump says, if Trump speaks, you listen." Um, the fact of the matter is, is that that once again, I think that we can lay this on on at the feet of the former president, because this is directly connected to the the insurrection and and of January 6. It's just another more evidence of, of increased radicalization across the country.
2: I just just so that I get a yes or no on this, is it possible for someone to both be suffering from a mental illness and to be radicalized by white supremacist hate groups?
3: Of course, they're, they're certainly more susceptible.
2: Yes. Leisha Brooks is chief of staff for the Southern Poverty Law Center. And Nicholas Wu is congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you both for joining me today.
4: Thank you, Melissa. Thanks.
2: I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And yes, the team of The Takeaway is in here. We're listening to Beyonce and sipping on the lemonade of unapologetic executive authority. It was President Biden's Monday press conference about America's messy departure from Afghanistan that got us thinking about what it sounds like when leaders say, I
4: ain't sorry, I ain't sorry.
2: On Monday, President Biden sounded like this. I am president
5: of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me.
2: This is what George W. Bush sounded like throughout his presidency. And what the American people need to know is what our allies know. I am determined to stay the course. And many would agree that President Trump took unapologetic to new lengths during his single term in office.
6: I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way.
2: This steadfast, make-no-apology stance is so common, I sometimes wonder if all the D.C. political advisors and speechwriters have watched Aaron Sorkin's The American President one too many times.
1: My name is Andrew Shepard, and I am the president.
2: And it's worth noting what happened to the presidential candidate who did make multiple high-profile apologies, Hillary Rodham Clinton. She had to apologize for using her personal email. That was a mistake. I'm sorry about that. I take responsibility. Uh, And I'm trying to be as transparent as I possibly can. She had to apologize for backing her husband's crime bill when she was first lady. I'm sorry for the consequences that were unintended and that have had a very unfortunate impact on people's lives. She even had to apologize for losing the election. And I'm sorry that we did not win this election. It seems like our politics prefers stay the course, the buck stops here, I am the president shows of strength. But is that political preference harming the quality of our democracy. Isn't there something strong about being willing to bend? Joining me now is Joel Payne, former aide to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and host of the podcast, Here Comes the Pain." Joel, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me, Melissa.
2: And also joining the conversation is Aisha Roscoe, White House correspondent for NPR, who is currently covering her third presidential administration. Aisha, welcome to you as well.
4: Ah, oh, Thanks for having me. So Aisha,
2: to me, it was striking to hear President Biden say the buck stops here on Monday. And although he was certainly taking accountability, he also sounded pretty unapologetic to me. Is that what you heard or did you hear that speech differently?
4: I heard him trying to, and, and I felt like he was trying to draw a distinction from the prior administration and from former President Trump, who never apologized. And in this case, I felt like Biden was saying, I take responsibility, I am president. But he also was saying he didn't have any regrets. He was also very defensive. I do agree that he wasn't apologizing. He was saying, I take responsibility for what happened, although he wasn't super specific about what he was taking responsibility for. Um, But he was saying that he takes responsibility, um, but he was not apologizing and he was not saying that he regretted anything. And he has said he does not regret his actions or or even that he feels like he could have done something differently.
2: Hmm. Joel, what did you hear?
0: I think the president was trying to take accountability, which is a quality and a value that we appreciate in our leaders, generally speaking, but I think it even goes a level deeper for me. Our relationships with our presidents are singular in the federal system. We um, have this personal rapport and relationship with our presidents that are unique to anybody else in government. It's not like a relationship with a senator or a governor or a mayor. The president has a really unique individual relationship with voters, and so, you're always digging into that reservoir of goodwill and trust and president biden one of his key qualities that helped him be the president was that the american people trust him and they've trusted him through a lot of public moments um, as vice president as senator and now as president and the president was digging into that reservoir to tap into that trust to say you know me you know who i am i made this decision and i take responsibility But I'm not going to apologize. So the biggest piece that I see here is just that reservoir of goodwill, but also, are you genuine? Because ultimately, I think that is what voters and that is what citizens are looking for most is, are you genuine? And can I tell that you're being genuine in these key moments?
2: So it, it, that's such an interesting uh, description and, and and way of thinking about it, Joel, because you know I, I do think that we can think that a leader is genuine, is authentic, without necessarily thinking that they are um, fully trustworthy. So um, this kept happening during um, Bill Clinton's presidency in the public opinion polls. You'd see, I don't necessarily trust him on his personal ethics, but I do trust him to protect the economy. And that's what I care about as a voter. A- Aisha, I'm wondering, as As you kind of listen to this idea that Joel is offering us, this really interesting one, that we have a particular singular relationship with our president, I'm wondering if tapping into that reservoir of trust means being more willing to be transparent about one's vulnerabilities and faults and mistakes or less transparent about them?
4: in american history it has meant being less uh transparent about vulnerabilities and faults and mistakes and 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 i will say that it, it is a, a very and I, I agree with joel it's a very different relationship right like that, that that the president has it's almost like a a a parental figure it's this leader he's supposed to comfort the nation um but there's also this degree to which leadership in this country, I think, can be viewed as to be strong is to not say that you're sorry. And I was taken by, you know, when you showed all those clips of Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. you have to look at that from the dynamic of a woman Mm -hmm. uh, being told or being conditioned to apologize, to say, I'm sorry, to say, I didn't mean to do that. And men not necessarily being conditioned that way in this society, Um, being taught that strength is saying, I did this, I take responsibility, but not saying, I'm sorry if anyone was hurt or offended or (laughs) like that is not typically how strength is viewed in this country. It is in a very, this idea of a male dominance, I think can't be separated from the fact that all of our presidents have been men, and this is the way they have projected.
2: Mm, Aisha is mm, definitely taking us to a really critical place around gender analysis and this concept of strength and apology. So, Joel, I got to come to you on this. Um, As former um, aide to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, how did you all think about this question of um, gender, strength, and apology?
0: Me and Melissa, I I think I had the same reaction to Aisha's comments as you. It feels like she was taking us to church. Um, (laughs) And and it, it does certainly bring back some thoughts about what that experience was like on the 2016 campaign with Hillary Clinton. Um, It's interesting the qualities that people ascribe to these uh, public figures, these political figures, whereas Donald Trump was seen as resolute and, um, you know, he had his he had spine and he wouldn't back down. Hillary Clinton was seen as being inflexible, where he was seen as being cunning. She was seen as being untrustworthy. Um, this, this certainly does get into gender dynamics. I think, by the way, it's part of the challenge that Vice President Harris has now and is going to continue to have as she continues to build out her public profile as somebody who is going to be on the political scene forever. But again, just just want to just double down on this whole idea of that unique relationship that a president has with the American public. If you really think about it, that relationship with the president is the only one where they are in our homes and in our lives every single day for the four years of that term. There's no one else in the country that's like that. And so this reservoir of trust that we're talking about and whether or not they're taking accountability, it all becomes so much more important.
2: Aisha, in covering presidents, I'm wondering um, if, if you hear advisors, if you hear staff actually Actively trying to think about maintaining that reservoir of trust with the American people?
4: It depends on the administration. Now, I, I, advisors typically want to be seen as trustworthy they want people to believe what they have to say they they typically in administrations will try to at least um give their spin of the truth it you know it's the truth but it's a spin on it uh and but they're also i think there is a difficulty because even though people want their politicians to be trustworthy uh there is this thing where Politicians are sometimes punished for mm-hmm. being too transparent. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they're not they do. They do not benefit from saying I messed up um, when they say I messed up. Then that becomes a campaign ad. And then people go, can you believe he messed up? What? You know, and it's not really taken as um it doesn't necessarily benefit them. But I, I think there are two different issues here. It's the issue of what's good for democracy and what is good for an individual candidate or an individual president who wants to get reelected. And sometimes it seems like the decision is, well, if we admit that we messed up, the cost will be more to us politically, even though it may be the morally right thing to do, we will face a political cost. And that is what they're kind of calculating.
2: Aisha, I feel like you you've gone right to the core of it that that what is campaign strategy is different than sort of long-term democratic um, health strategy, right? That these might be two very different things. We might want a transparent, vulnerable, thoughtful, willing-to-learn president um, from a long-term democracy perspective, I think, here of President Jimmy Carter. But from a political perspective, right, that kind of vulnerability and willingness to sort of learn publicly is often punished on the campaign trail. So, Joel, I want to, we talked a little bit about gender, I want to talk about race a bit here, because I'm also thinking of President Obama so early in his presidency, um, being sort of pressured to apologize for his statements that the Cambridge police acted stupidly. Um, And I've always said, I think it's just because he used an adverb and Americans don't use those anymore. So we made him apologize for it. But that ended up like, Um, having an important effect on his uh, sort of executive capacity over the next few years in terms of, you know, kind of always coming back to that Beer Summit moment.
0: That was a really unique moment in the Obama presidency where, um, look, there was certainly a part of the country, many of us African-Americans, who understood what he was saying, whatever part of speech he decided to lead into, adverbs, adjectives, what have you, participles whatever you want to call it. We knew exactly what he was talking about when he was referring to the situation where that police officer accosted Skip Gates at his home. But the president, again, he's not just speaking as Barack Obama, the man he's speaking as Barack Obama, the head of government. And it is uniquely layered when you are an African-American and you view the world through through those lens. And um, I certainly think President Obama was treated to Um, a different kind of understanding of what that was like as as an African-American man. One thing, if I could just jump to really quickly, Mm -hmm. Melissa, is what we're talking about here in this moment is really about President Biden trying to reframe this moment around Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And really, it's him trying to reclaim the narrative. And so that speech where he was talking about leaning into his accountability and leaning into the buck stops here, that was him trying to say, I am reclaiming control of the high ground in the narrative, which is more important than right or wrong at that point. It was demonstrating being in control.
2: And Aisha, I wonder also if, as Joel was pointing out, that reclamation of the narrative is particularly important in the president's role in in foreign policy, right? That um, that sort of cannot show weakness might actually be good for democracy or or good for governance um, when it is outward facing
4: if there's any area you want the president to be in control it would be foreign policy it would it would be as commander in chief so i think in many ways that is that is important, but it has to be backed up with action. So it can't just be the rhetoric. It has to be, you have to demonstrate, I think in a case like this, that you actually are in control and that things, because if people keep seeing these images that look so distraught and so chaotic, um, that trust that Joel keeps talking about, um, that genuineness is going to be really tested.
2: Yeah. I I mean, Joel, I'll I'll come to that now. I'm going to I'm going to like go a little hip hop and, and, you know, love and hip hop here on it. But like if you're standing there telling me, hey, you know, girl, just trust me, you know, we've been together a long time, but like I can smell the perfume on you. Like that's going to be a problem because the evidence of what I can see is different than what you're saying. And isn't Biden maybe like in saying, trust me, I got this, but it doesn't look like he has this. Isn't that possibly going to erode that reservoir of trust?
0: It's certainly possible, but that's where your record matters. I mean, President Biden can certainly point to a record of as vice president, as senator, as a public figure, where his clear distinguishing characteristic is being someone of integrity, who deals straight with people, who talk straight. Um, and those qualities come into real factor when you're talking about a crisis moment like this. We just had a president, Donald Trump, who would not be able to draw on that same reservoir, right? Because that was not his public persona. No one certainly thought Donald Trump was being truthful or honest in his public moments. They thought he was always trying to obfuscate and dodge and dip. And so those moments play differently. If you put Donald Trump in the the place of Joe Biden over the last um, week with this uh, situation related to Afghanistan, I think it's a very different public conversation we're having.
2: Joel Payne, host of the podcast, Here Comes the Pain," and Aisha Roscoe, White House Correspondent for NPR. Thank you both for joining us. Thank Thank you, You,
0: Melissa.
2: I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. You're listening to The Takeaway. Or should I say The Bakeaway? That's right. We're going to end this show with a tasty treat. So grab your whisks and measuring spoons, and let's head to the kitchen. Now, here's what you'll need. Two tablespoons of radical empathy. Three cups of social justice savvy. Four teaspoons of smashed patriarchy. Five cups of dismantled white supremacy. And a dash of humor. Mix all these ingredients together with lots of love and care and bam, bam. That's one delicious recipe for liberation. Mm. Baking, like marching in the streets, can be a powerful form of protest. It's one of the countless alternative forms of protest that we saw last summer. Whether we're talking about painting murals or surfboard paddle outs, there are just so many different ways to be an activist today. And the list just keeps on growing. For more on this, we're joined by Paolo Velez, who is pastry chef and co-founder of Bakers Against Racism. Paola, welcome to the show. Hi,
6: thank you for having me.
2: And also with us is Veronica Chambers, editor of Narrative Projects at the New York Times and author of Call and Response, The Story of Black Lives Matter. Veronica, great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Veronica, I want to start with you as parent. What was um, your experience like in spring and summer of 2020? Um, It was heartbreaking.
5: You know, as I wrote about in the New York Times Parenting Newsletter, I literally started, there were days when I woke up crying and there were days when I went to bed crying and I was in a not giant apartment with my 13-year-old daughter. And so I was navigating both this incredible grief over the moment that we were in with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many other people, and also trying to navigate, okay, how do I have this conversation with my daughter? Because um, she knows more than I would want her to know right now about what's going on.
2: I I think um, for me, that language of of grief, of navigation, of um, the kind of disruption I mean, it certainly, um, Paula, is why I turned to baking, um, and I've always been a you know a little bit of a baker here and there. But I think many of us, in the context of the pandemic, even before the murder of George Floyd, were were soothing ourselves in part by the by the the chemistry, the the kitchen magic, all of that of baking. Why is baking a particular way to address those issues?
6: I think. All of us um, self-soothe with uh, sweets, right? We use sweets to celebrate. We use them to accomplish milestones. We use them when we break up with folks, you know? And this happening that happened in um, June of 2020, it was... Another way to activate uh, baking and bake goods for the good of others. You know, um, as a pastry chef, we always do these little celebration uh, desserts at the end of someone's meal, if they're happy, if they're just great people, if it's their birthday or anniversary. And we kind of radicalized baking to use it as a tool to fight against injustice this time around.
2: I I love that you reminded, I'm I'm so married these days, but I'm so glad you reminded me of the importance of sweets uh, at the moment of a breakup. Um, And that in fact, one of the things that your girlfriends do when they really love you is if you're breaking up, they might bake you something and bring it to you, right? That's part of like that commiseration. And, And Veronica, to go back to your parenting I think a lot of us, not that we were in a really healthy relationship with the United States before this, but but it really felt like a rupture in our relationship with our nation. Um, and I think many, for young, for particularly for young people, that's how it felt. I'm wondering about how you and your daughter did begin to walk through um, those agonizing moments.
5: Yeah, you know, I think that I had, I think every parent of color has to decide when you're gonna have the race conversation with your daughter or son or child. Um, And I think that for me, I realized in that moment of June, 2020, that I had really leaned in on culture or Afro-Latina culture, or the Black girl magic thing. And I had sort of built up all of these things from the Harlem Renaissance to W.E.B. Du Bois to, you know, the Civil Rights Movement to, you know, Alvin Ailey, like I'd gone so hard in one direction and I hadn't gone so hard in the let's talk about systemic racism, let's talk about lynching, let's talk about police brutality. And so it was a tough moment because we were compressing really decades of history into days. And um, the one of the outcomes was that my daughter attended her first March and it was electrifying. And I think that I think partly what that moment provided was. And I know I mean, your work is so powerful about this, Melissa, but really what we were having a conversation was about citizenry, citizenry and citizenship and um, And really what we were going to do in the moment and not just how we felt, but how we could be in community. And for my daughter attending her first march, it was electrifying.
2: Hmm. I, I, I love that point that citizenship is not just about how we feel, but what we're going to do. So Paola, talk to me about what you did about Bakers Against Racism.
6: For us, Bakers Against Racism, I mean, for me, it was a continuation of something that I've always done. Before when the pandemic um, just hit, everybody in the culinary industry was reeling. We were all losing our jobs. We were being furloughed left and right. And a lot of uncertainty was happening. And I know personally that I didn't know what was next. I, I couldn't even get into the unemployment system to file for unemployment. I had to uh, call all of my local legislators, all of my um, councilmen and women to help my staff get their unemployment. But then I thought about, what about our undocumented workforce? Who's standing up for them? Who's making sure that they still have a way to pay their bills or eat, you know? And I started this donut pop-up called Dona Dona. And um, all of the proceeds were going to uh, this organization called AUSA DC, and um, it kind of like got me into the act of always giving. Um, my mom taught me that if we, let's say, we had three dollars um, to our name, we always should give one away. Um, so the act of giving has been something really ingrained in me, um, and when the murder of George Floyd happened, it broke us. It broke every single person around me in my community. And, you know, when Willa Bellini asked me, would you like to do one more bake sale? I figured it wasn't enough. If I was really gonna stand up for black lives, for my life, it, for my husband's life, for my family's life, for my community's life, was it enough to just do one more bake sale? So I got to Google and I made a Google folder and I compiled everything that I had learned uh, for the six-month run of Doña Dona and um, I just put it on the internet and it took zero dollars to raise almost 1.9 million dollars in a week. I
2: love this story because it shifts that idea of bake sale, which is which is made almost um, almost trite or small, or well, what are you going to do? Just have a bake sale for justice? Well, actually, yes. I mean, it, it, it is a really kind of extraordinary um, remembrance of what scale um, that is still very close to community can do. And, and Veronica, in the piece that you wrote um, for the New York Times, Baking the World a Better Place, you actually talk about a history of liberation based bake sales.
5: I was so excited to write about Paula and Bakers Against Racism in part because I knew about the work of Georgia Gilmore, who um, during the 1950s helped fund the Montgomery bus boycott with a group she called the Club from Nowhere. And it was local groups who made meals and baked. They, their specialties were peach pies and pound cakes, and they donated the money to the movement and they kept it going. I think Paula's group and the bakers who work with them are in a really fine tradition. And I think, you know, this is what, um, this is the upside of all the downsides, right? Is that in the quiet of the pandemic, in our grief, we, like, connect and as community and we actually, like, there's a, I think there's a kind of, like, remembering of what we can do together with our own two hands and, and it
2: connects to history. Paula, um, talk to me about this network. I mean, on the one hand, you created it with a Google form for free, right? And and raised nearly $2 million. But also talk to me about the relationships that were built. And are
6: y'all sharing recipes? I guess we are. There have been so many diverse communities within Bakers Against Racism that have formed, you know, we have I think uh, it's called the Bake Sale Project. I know that there have been a lot of cottage um, industry bakers that are now baking in their regions and they are making their livelihood from the very Google forms that we sent out. Um, It kind of formed a community of folks that we thought we would never work again. And we figured out how to work and not only how to work, but how to support each other and how to support the causes that we believe in. When we when we bake, we are not just baking for social justice. We're baking for the creatives, the scientists. We're baking for the Black surfers of Nova Scotia. We are connecting with folks in Mumbai and London. We are talking to folks in Australia who want to just radicalize baking and do good in this world you know um, I always say that you can bake the world a better place and truly over the last year and a few months we have strengthened that part of the industry that has been so ostracized and cast away whenever things get tough and we have formed a community of people who are just active and ready to bake for one another regardless of the cause
2: As I hear you talk about um, radicalizing baking, Veronica, where you ultimately came with your daughter is the publication of a a new book, Call and Response, about all these countless alternate forms of protest, very much like this notion of radicalizing baking. What are some of the other unique examples that you looked at?
5: What was so great about doing this book, which is really centered on there's over 100 photographs, most of them by New York Times photographers, was just looking at the pictures. I mean, I love the pictures of the ride out that the Compton Cowboys had. And, you know, there's an eight-year-old girl riding a horse with a Black Lives Matter sign in Compton. I loved the skateboard protests and the bike protest, And um, Paula mentioned the paddle outs. I think the protests that Black surfers had in the oceans on both the East and the West Coast were so powerful. Um, And the music, the concerts that people like John Batiste had, um, the murals that people made, you know, diving into the stories of the murals. I mean, I think so many of us, you know, we drive around cities and we love these murals, but for us, like being able to know this was a father and daughter This was a group of classmates who aren't even professional artists who decided, okay, we're going to throw up this mural. And they're so extraordinary. There's so many ways to be an activist. And and I was so happy to be able to highlight Bakers Against Racism because it's, it's just one of a beautiful palette of um, activism and activation that young people have to choose from. And and ultimately, I think that's what I wanted to highlight in the book and in our work at the New York Times, is that you have choices, and when you have choices, it helps you from feeling helpless and powerless, which is what I I really feared that my daughter would feel and that I think so many young people were in danger of feeling.
6: Paolo, will
2: there be a cookbook?
6: I don't know yet. I think I am just trying to make sure that we stay up to date with everything that's going on in the world. We're currently, our last activation was um, in support of AAPI Lives. Mm -hmm. And I'm gearing up after a little break for the summer, gearing up to start activating again. So I think I would have to ask the bakers because I don't actually do anything without their consent. I will tell you that I'm
2: raising my hand begging for um, some way for all of us to engage even more with the incredible work that you're doing. Paula Velez is a pastry chef and co-founder of Bakers Against Racism. And Veronica Chambers is editor of Narrative Projects at the New York Times. So much gratitude for both of you for the work that you do and for joining us.
5: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Okay, folks, that's a week for you. Now, it's good to have you with us. Big shout out to the team that makes this happen. Amber Hall, who is sadly departing our show next week for a new adventure, is our senior producer and line producer for today's show. Jackie Martin is our regular line producer. Ethan Elberman, Meg Dalton, Lydia McMillan-Laird, Chanta Covington, and Katerina Barton are our producers. Milton Ruiz and Shamsundra were our board ops this week. Vince Fairchild is our engineer, and Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. David Gable is our executive assistant. Zach Bynum is our digital editor. And Lee Hill is our long-suffering executive producer. And hey, keep sending us your slice of life audio. Record a small piece of your world and email it to takeawaycollars at gmail.com. And tell us what we're hearing. We want to get to know you better. More on that next week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway.